Thanks for tuning in to the So We Speak podcast. We're going to pick up where we left off from last week, and we want to talk a little bit more about Christian's relationship with politics. Last week, we covered Tim Keller's article in the New York Times from a couple of weeks ago, uh, where do Christians fit in the two-party system? They don't. Right. And I thought that was a really helpful article. It revealed a lot of issues, I think, that are deeper than what he was able to cover in that article. But what I want to talk about today is where do we get practical? So we've, we've examined a little bit the framework of Christian engagement with culture, but when it comes right down to it, what do we actually do as Christians in a hostile two-party system to our faith? And the first thing that I want to throw out there is I think we need to go back to a biblical understanding of the way that change is supposed to be brought about in the world. Good For point. example. Good start. I think that a lot of what we're critiquing, whether you're coming from Keller's angle or whether you're um, coming from a little bit more conservative angle, is you feel like a large portion of the church has sold out to political idolatry. And I'll give two examples of this. I think there are a lot of people who feel like the liberal branch of the church, both theologically and politically, has sold out from what the Bible says about culture, what the Bible says about social issues, what the Bible says about how we should behave, to this call for diversity and justice and all of those things that have become part of the Democratic Party agenda. Now, if you just open up Twitter or if you look at people who are Episcopalian or the liberal branch of the Presbyterian Church, sure enough, most of those people are Democrats. And they do it in the name of social justice. Right. You know, there's a lot swirling around with social justice right now because of the statement from MacArthur and his camp about engagement with social justice. And one of the things that's done is reveal where people's allegiance is when it comes to the importance of social justice and the gospel. Right. Now, I think we can disagree on that statement, and we may talk extensively about that statement mm-hmm. at some point in the future. But I think the important takeaway is what you're seeing is people who are saying, look, you've sold out. So, the social issues are not the gospel right. the issue that we should be worrying about. We should be worrying about evangelism and discipleship and transforming the culture. Right. So on the one hand, you have people looking at that, and you say... This is exactly what happened in the 1920s with the social gospel. Exactly. This is exactly what Harry Emerson Fosdick sold out to. This is exactly what people during the civil rights sold out to. It's not right that we put social and um, justice issues above the gospel. Right. And if that's where you are, you are probably very angry at Christians who identify themselves as Democrats. Right. On the other hand, yes, you've got a lot of people in the middle. And I read a great article last week. I included this in our Patreon um, weekly speak from last week. So the one a guy from Hillsdale, I think their name is Weingard, Bo and Ben Weingard, wrote an article called The Great Awakening. And uh, <laughs> they talk about in there that the, these prophets of the Great Awakening have certain signals. And that so the word woke obviously is talking about people who are sensitive to cultural diversity issues, right. who are sensitive to um, historic injustice. And 
And you see that a lot. And there's a lot of guys that I really admire in the way they've handled the racial divide in America who would consider themselves woke. So Eric Mason has a book coming out this week called Woke Church. I love Eric Mm -hmm. Mason. Right. We disagree on a few things. He's doing ministry in the urban core of Philadelphia. I think what they're doing is amazing. But what this article points out is a lot of people, especially white people, who want to identify with the cultural diversity movement are just using it to virtue signal. That they're not the same as the other white people. And it becomes an elitist issue. So um, if you have that going on, you have this divide in evangelicalism. And on the liberal side of the divide, what you see is this whole group of people who will not get with the program when it comes to racism in this country. Mm -hmm. You've got this backwards old-timey, stick-to-your-guns, pun intended, group of people who can't understand that this isn't the 1800s anymore. Mm -hmm. That we need to fess up to the historic injustices of the church. Many of our early pastors owned slaves and realize that we have a lot of making up to do. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're not going to see that in the elitist sense that I just talked about. They're going to see that as an issue of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. So what they're mad at is people who have sold out to political idolatry and they're going to point to people like the religious right and they're going to say, just because you got promised a Supreme Court pick, you threw in your exactly. you threw in your lot with Trump and in doing that, you've become complicit with things like racism and nationalism and patriotism. And so you're reacting to one of those two probably. On the one hand, mm-hmm. you think that there's a group of people who have sold out the gospel for a bill of social issues. Yeah. Now they're complicit in things like abortion and all of that in the name of social justice. On the other hand, you look over and you say, you've sold out politically in in an idolatrous way just to get a couple of Supreme Court picks. You've become complicit in racism and patriotism. You've, instead of giving to Caesar what's Caesar's, you've given everything to Caesar. And I think most people are probably in one of those positions. I completely agree. And you're right. If you just look at Twitter, and let's just talk about Christians on Twitter, you see some of those who are vehemently apologizing for Donald Trump, supporting Donald Trump, when... You know, other Christians would look and say, well, regardless of your political views, some of this is indefensible. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you'll see Christians, liberal, and you will say, you know, some of this is really good, but frankly, you know, you can't make an apologetic for these other things. And so you're right. It's taking the whole package in. And now I feel compelled to defend President Trump's personal moral behavior or abortion or certain other things, you know, certain other tactics and things that have been artificially pasted onto the liberal movement, in my view. And that's, uh, that's something that's causing a deep divide in the church. So how do, we, how do we go about working through that? How do we gain from that? I, I want to throw out two things. Uh-huh. And, and I know you have some thoughts on how to practically move on from this. But the first thing that I would say is, given that those are kind of the cultural waves that are taking place, The first thing that I would suggest is we all need to check our hearts when it comes to anger. Great point. Paul is clear. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If that's the case, then I think we need to be very careful about being motivated politically by anger at other people. 
one of the things that you lose when you're angry, and I feel this in my own heart on like a weekly basis, if you watch the news, uh-huh. is the anger at another group of people who aren't doing what I think they should be doing. And what that does is that limits your perspective. That I completely agree. And I then put them in a box and label them as evil. And instead of you hold a mistaken opinion, you are in error, you are wrong, you are evil. Right. And that anger takes me from one healthy position. They'll say, let's talk about this because I believe that you are wrong. I believe that you are mistaken. Anger takes me to the, I believe you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. That's a really good caution. So I think we need to be careful about how motivated we are by anger. Are we deciding our political position because we're against something? Or do we really believe that this is true? I think as Christians, if we will take action, if we will speak, if we will react in ways that come from positions that we have positively developed, we would be much better off than when we develop positions that are only negatively developed in opposition to somebody that we're mad at. Can I take a shot at uh, one of the things I don't like to do is how we virtue signal as Christians by saying we're better Christians than the other Christians. Mm -hmm. I want to take a shot at the entire Christendom in America. I do not believe that any of the things we're talking about are necessarily true outside America. And I think that would be interesting to talk about. Give us some perspective. But here it is, is we have been pushed by the culture and we react. And it leads us into the culture says you should believe this about gay marriage. You should believe this about abortion. You should believe this about racism. And the church is saying, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. I am against what you are doing. If we were doing a better job of proclaiming the truth, we would be saying, we support this. God says this is true and just and right. And uh, basically, let's play a little offense and not just defense. Yeah, especially on the cultural issues that we've been kind of boxed into a corner on as Christians. Um, I think that's really true. I mean, I, I remember it wasn't very long ago that we were arguing on the topic of abortion as if, and we did the same thing on homosexuality, as if it really mattered whether or not it was nature or nurture. For example, with abortion, yeah. it was, is the baby really a person right, or is it not a person? And that used to be a legitimate dividing line. So we can support abortion if it's not a person, but if it turns out it is a person, then we have kind of a gentleman's agreement that everybody's going to flip their position and and agree that we're not going to kill human beings in the womb. Well, you look at you look back at that now, and you kind of chuckle. You're like, "Well, that that's cute." Or the viability line, which keeps moving, right? As the science, the science on this one has gone in favor of the argument that. They're human beings, right. sentient, feeling human beings right. in the womb that we're murdering when mm-hmm. we when we do abortions. And what's been revealed by that is nobody on the on either side of this really cared all that much where the line was because right. the line has moved and virtually nobody has changed changed their opinion. Exactly. Now we would come at this from Christians and say, no, we we believe that where the line that was where the line was, and the lines actually moved back. We haven't changed our position at all. I mean, that, that may be true. But what I'm saying is it turned out that that really wasn't the battleground we thought it was. You know, can I jump in here? Because Tim Keller, uh, we jumped off his article. He said one of the best things and made this observation, which I agreed with, but I think he said it better, is let's go to the gay issue. 
In other words, and that's a terrible word. Nobody knows what they mean. But basically, the issue of homosexuality and whether or not it is a godly can be a godly thing or not a godly thing. He he said this. It's this idea of moving the line. He said, if you used to think that homosexuality was wrong. And then you met and actually interacted and got to know people who were gay and living a gay lifestyle, and you changed your mind, then you were a bigot before. Mm. And I thought that's really astute. In other words, and it's kind of what you're saying about this, is basically I changed my mind simply because, not because I no longer think it's true, but because, oh, I'm sympathetic to it. He said, you were a bigot before. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of what you're saying about the abortion issue is it became to be revealed that I actually wasn't depending on where the line was. I had a preconceived idea. I was, quote, a bigot about my position on that. That's a really good observation, Cole. I think that's true on almost every social issue, Mm -hmm. is we have these discussions and it ends up that no matter how the discussion gets resolved, we really are going to believe what we already believed anyway, and we'll either make an excuse or we'll just deny the evidence that, that we carry either way. Do you remember when we thought that whether or not you were born gay was going to be a determinative issue on right. what we thought about homosexuality? Exactly. That Nobody was, believed that that was actually the issue. No, that's but it was always a convenient been irrelevant. thing to argue about. Right. And I agree with you. If As Christians, I think our role is not to be reactionary. It's not to accept the terms of the culture. It's not to be boxed in and then lash out in anger. Our goal is to articulate and practice what the Bible teaches. This what what should happen for Christians is we should come across a new issue and realize we already have a stance on this. Right. Because we've been teaching what the Bible says. I think about this this with all the frontiers that are coming our way when it comes to AI. So the Bible obviously doesn't talk about artificial intelligence. Oh, but, but that the Bible is going has, to be another issue. It's going to like be a this. huge issue. And the worst thing we can do is wait until the culture has already made up its mind and already started its momentum to come out with a reactionary position as Christians on what we believe about that. Right. The, I'm not saying this would have changed the narrative. I'm not even saying this would have changed the course of the culture. But the fact that most Christians hadn't really thought about what they what they thought about gay marriage or even issues like divorce or the yes. family and the decline of the family until they were forced to talk about it by the culture means that they already lost. I completely agree with that. You know, I'm going to go off and here's where my my true north, my grounding on this is I think about Romans 12, 2. It's a it's an important passage to me because I like the idea of truth because it's the one unchanging thing. Hmm. My feelings will, and my feelings will change. They will go up, they will go down, but it's, we stand for what is true. And in Romans 12 too, it says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. And a lot of what we're talking about is effectively Christians moving with the waves of the culture, not having solid ground on which to stand. And we become conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm And I don't think that means there's no emotional component to Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is we do now have the truth. Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Mm. And Pontius Pilate replied, what is truth? Which, which side are we on on that? We, our minds are renewed and we believe that there are things that are true. And part of that is true is how we love people who disagree with us. We, love, we, we go do and speak 
truth to the culture. When we fail to do that, I think it's easy to be conformed. Mm-hmm. Is that a way of thinking about what you're saying? I think that's a good parable for our cultural situation. If you if you think about it, so Jesus says, you know, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Yes. And after that, Pilate says, what is truth? Mm-hmm. But you know what's kind of interesting about that is Jesus doesn't respond. Because Jesus already told him. Yeah. He doesn't need to get into an argument over Pilate's own terms about what truth is. And I'm not trying to make too much out of this parable, make an argument from I, silence. I agree. But I think there's some wisdom in the fact that Jesus says, this is the truth. I came to testify to the truth. My kingdom right. is not of this world. Pilate says, what is truth? Jesus doesn't feel the need to answer. Right. Sometimes believers, I feel like what we do is we make a statement and the culture says, well, what is truth? And then we feel like we have to go play the culture's game and we have to get the right. respect of the secular academy and we have to go and answer all the questions that they have. And when we do that, we basically end up getting sucked into the same battle that uh, we were trying to avoid in the first place. Right. So the second thing I want to point out would be nuance. I think the first thing is we need to have a heart check about our anger. Right. The second thing is I think we need to think a lot about nuance. What our social media situation produces is a lack of nuance. So we want things Mm -hmm. that you can say in 140 characters, 280 characters, or in a blog entry. Right. We don't want to read a book about it, much less a series of books about it, much less a long argument with multiple books and series about something. Right. What we want is we want to sit down in church and for about 25 minutes, we want to hear a sermon that makes us feel good about ourselves and gives us every single thing we need to know about a certain topic. Right. Or we want to follow certain people on Twitter and just kind of believe whatever they say as our belief system. Mm-hmm. I think a call for practical engagement in politics from Christians would require that we need a little bit more nuance in our thinking. And I, there's a couple point. of facets facets to this. I think the first one is we actually need to know what's going on. So being informed. For example, we need to be informed. And we can't be informed if we only read op-eds right. or reduced form of op-eds, hot takes on Twitter. Yeah, You've got to actually read some news. you got to actually know what the facts are before we just talk about interpretations of the facts. So I think that's a really important thing for Christians. It's not something that we really like to do because it's such a gigantic mess. But we mm-hmm. need to be informed. Secondly, we need to bring a genuinely Christian worldview to the information that we're gathering. And this is where I would go back to Keller. So Keller's background is as a Kyperian Reformed Christian. Mm-hmm. So even though he doesn't always behave like this now, I think Keller right. may be drifting a little bit from these roots. But these are his roots, this no is, doubt about it. These are his doctrinal roots. So Abraham Kuyper is far and away one of the most important Christians in the last 250 years. Mm-hmm. Not studied like he should be. Mm-hmm. First of all, because he's not very accessible. Right. But one of the things I really like about Kuyper is he was one of those guys that put into practice what he really believed about the faith. So he was a politician. He was a Dutch politician who ended up being the prime minister. He started a university. He was the president of a university. He talked about policy. He was a pastor of a church. He started a denomination. He wrote books, articles, Mm -hmm. devotional works, legislation. I mean, he had this vision 
for all of Christ, for all of life. He's the one that famously Mm -hmm. said, there's no square inch in the universe over which Jesus doesn't proclaim mine. That's that's the vision of Kuiper. So the thing that Kuiper is often pegged with that, that is not true is that he advocated for some form of theocracy. So because the entire universe yes, right. belongs to Christ, because Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, we should basically reestablish an Old Testament theocracy, and that would be the answer to our political problems. But what's interesting about Kuiper is that's not the move he makes. What he believes is culture will only be transformed, politics will only be transformed by individual Christian consciences mm-hmm. at work in our social systems. Uh, a transformative approach. So what Kuiper was arguing for was not Christian government. It was Christians in government. Mm-hmm. So he believes that you can leave all of your political questions up to collective Christian conscience if those people truly have a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. So in the extreme, what he would say is, what what's your stance on abortion? Well, his stance would be, what does a specific group of Christians in your specific culture at your specific time come together and agree, banking on the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to guide that group of people to produce legislation on the topic of abortion? Mm-hmm. That seems a little bit radical right now. It does. Uh-huh. But it's something where if you really think through the tenets of it, do we trust that the Holy Spirit guides Christian consciences or not? If the mind has been renewed, and I, I do, in fact, if indeed we are Christ followers. Our minds have been renewed. I believe the Holy Spirit can work through that. If I'm still operating out of my biases, the old man is still quite alive within me, uh, you can put any label on that that you want, and you're probably going to get what we have today. Right. A and lot of arguments. That's why it's so dangerous to have a nominally Christian group of people right. advocating for the quote-unquote Christian position on any issue. Right. Is if they're not being transformed, if they're not biblically grounded, if they don't have a sense of nuance in the Christian position, how do you expect them to articulate anything remotely Christian when it comes to uh, an issue which we talked about last time, Keller would proclaim a matter of practical wisdom. Right. So nuance to me is a real key to the way that Christians are going to engage in culture. If you haven't thought about issues, if you haven't spent time studying the Bible, if you haven't looked through the information before you made up your mind, there's no way for us as Christians to actually bank on the fact that the Spirit will guide our collective Christian consciences towards something that's God-honoring on really difficult issues. I agree. Another way of saying that, that idea about nuance, I like this saying, is... Uh, One of the signs of maturity is that you realize that complex problems don't have simple solutions. And I I think that's true in our faith. I just think it's true in human beings. I mean, everybody's dealt with a teenager who says, well, all you need to do to fix the world is this. A sign of maturity is realizing complicated problems don't have simple solutions all the time. And that's true. And think about our world. Sound bites on television, 280 characters on Twitter a little Facebook entry that says something, that is an attempted simple solution to a complex problem. You Mm -hmm. have no nuance, and it's immature. And I would say, my point is, I believe that we have immature dialogue Mm -hmm. in our culture, and we have no hope then of addressing complex problems. That's right. So to get really practical, at the end of the day, come November, you've got to vote. 
Right. You don't have to, but you got to vote. If you're going to go vote, there's probably going to be a Democrat and there's going to be a Republican. If we believe Keller and we don't identify the church with a straight ballot vote on either side of that, right? what are we supposed to do when we vote? Great question. The rubber meets the road. I think we have an obligation to vote because we can. If I lived in North Korea, I would have a different opinion about how Christians should respond. If I were in a first century Christian under the domination of Rome, I would say you really don't want to go picket the palace of the emperor. It's just a quick way to die. It's not effective. In America, we happen to have the ability to influence our political process. I believe that we should use the avenues available to us to do that. But here's the dilemma. I've got two choices and I don't like either one. I mean, how many people would say that? In other words, I don't fully identify with Trump in this case. I don't fully identify with the other. So how do I decide how to vote? And let me just give you an opinion or at least some thoughts of how I approach this. So here's the issue. For Trump, for example, I believe personally one of the reasons that he uh, was voted in and he won that election against all predictions is because he had already pledged to put a conservative, strict uh, originalist judge on the Supreme Court. And what many people in America were feeling, and I believe rightly so, is a tyranny of the judiciary. They had just had the coercive power of the government because of a 5-4 vote tell them that everywhere, for example, gay marriage is legal, like it or not. Uh, And same on other social issues. And they felt like, wow, that's making a huge difference in my life. You have schools and businesses being told that you're going to have to do all these changes to accommodate LGBTQ, etc. Setting aside the rightness or wrongness of that, people felt like they were being coerced and oppressed. So they said, Donald Trump says he's going to appoint a judge that will not interfere in my lives that way. His opponent is not. I said, I really, really like that. But at the same time, it's really hard to see how as a Christian you could support Donald Trump's personal moral life and say, gee, that's Christian. Donald Trump can be whoever Donald Trump wants to be in our country, but I'm certainly not going to put that label on it. So on the flip side, you say, I have a more moral candidate, somebody who does not do or does do things that I think are more in line with Christian morality, but they're going to do things that I believe are going to affect me and inhibit me and go against some of the things I deeply believe. So I think that's why he chose. So here, this leads me to to my point is, you're not voting for a party. I don't think Christians are even voting for a candidate anymore because I can't in good conscience endorse everything about either of these candidates. I think what you have to do is decide what issue most impacts my ability to carry out God's work in this world. And I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote one way or the other. Then I'm going to vote for that. And I'm not going to pretend that I support everything else. What are your thoughts on that approach? Given, given the assumption that you should vote, yes. I don't see any way around the situation where you are voting at any point for the lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. Now, in local elections... You, there are still really good people probably running for government exactly. positions. And in that case, I don't mean to say that every person running for That's a political right. office Agreed. is evil. But it just appears that probably in our national races and a lot of our presidential uh, elections over the next few years, 
we're not going to agree as Christians with the candidate who's been chosen. We're not going to identify with them morally. Maybe we don't identify with them politically. And so given the assumption that you need to vote, there's always going to be a question of how much can I overlook in order to vote for this person? And I like what you said. Think of it less I'm voting for this person as I'm voting for a specific agenda, a specific set of issues a specific in the Supreme Court. One issue that I think will guarantee Christians the right to do uh, what God has called them to do in our culture. I guess maybe I would take a little bit harder line on that in the sense that I don't think we have to vote when the candidates pass a certain threshold. So, for example, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. There's part of me that doesn't believe I can in good conscience vote for either one of those people. I understand. Not just because I disagree with them, but because I think they cross a threshold in my mind of, even if my vote is not a complete endorsement of them as a person, right? can I in good conscience even cast a vote for somebody like either one of those people? Right. And I'm tempted to say no on that <laughs> one. And whether or not you're a never-Trump person or... You know, a lot of evangelicals were split on this. I do think there's a point, even with the freedom to vote, where maybe we pass over a line where you say, I just can't vote for either of these people, and I'm just going to trust God to do what he wants to do, and whoever we end up with as president, and we're going to have some good and we're going to have some some bad. Now, I wouldn't right. I wouldn't make that dogmatic because mm-hmm. I think that line is really hard to ascertain. It is. I think it's difficult. That's why I wouldn't criticize people who did vote for Trump. I wouldn't criticize people who did vote for Hillary if they were voting along the lines that you said. Hey, you know what? I don't agree with Hillary on abortion, planned parenthood, but I think that her economic policy or whatever you believe about her poor more than help the poor. The yes, understand. I, I agree with where you're coming from on that. If you voted for Donald Trump because you believe the Supreme Court, I think that's justified. Uh, but I don't agree with you about much of anything else when it, when it pertains to Trump's character, when it pertains right. to a lot of the other things that he's right. done. So I think that's a viable Christian position on either side of that. But I do wonder, is there a time where you think that even in a free country, we just can't in good conscience vote for somebody? Well, that's a great question, uh, and I think it's the only reason that it's a valid question is because we are so politicized. Plato once said, the penalty for not being involved in politics is to be governed by your inferiors. So I am a fan of Christians being in politics, even though I know that there are real challenges of how can you actually do that. And the answer might be very few Christians can uh, navigate that. But I, I am okay with this idea for this reason. If you assume that voting for Hillary Clinton means you embrace everything she says, and that is the package deal, but if we will then speak truth in every circumstance, I think we can overcome that. Uh, for example, if you voted for Donald Trump because you felt like religious freedom helps us further the kingdom of God in this country, then if we also then speak out and say, we are vocal in that Donald Trump, we cannot support this. We cannot support that. We cannot validate this. We can get out of that either or box. But I agree, it's real, and we're going to get tarred a little bit by this. I think the key is not to worry so much about what the world thinks, but to be about God's agenda in the world and what moves that forward best. With this one proviso, God is sovereign. It does, in the end... 
If Donald Trump had lost and you get a Supreme Court justice that even further infringes it, that will not be the fate of the church. Or if Donald Trump won and he is giving a bad name to the church in some sense because the church supporting him, God is still sovereign. That will not destroy the church. So I don't mean to take a position of it doesn't matter and these things aren't important. I simply want to say, let's keep our perspective on this. If the church is supposed to be persecuted, it will be persecuted and it will thrive. And if the church you know, is supposed to thrive in America because we have a favorable political climate, then we will do that. Yeah, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, I think when it comes to political idolatry, as long as we avoid believing that the government is the solution exactly. to the problems that God has said the church is the answer for in the culture, I feel pretty comfortable with what we do politically. Now, that's not to say that I think that uh, you know everybody is just justified to vote however they want, whenever they want. I don't want to. I don't want to paint a picture that it doesn't really matter who you vote for. It does matter who you vote for, and it does matter that you endorse a person with your vote for what they believe. But given a situation where you really can't, in good conscience, endorse both people, I think it's important for us to realize that it's not idolatry to pick an issue and vote for it, despite the other things that are surrounding the candidate. I'll give you an example for me, what would have made this a harder choice for me. And again, how I vote doesn't inform what other Christians do. I'm speaking about my personal opinion, but here's the thought process I use. If Hillary Clinton, for example, and we probably shouldn't even use names here because it's not a personal issue to me. I do think that she had more of a focus on, uh, for example, helping the poor. Let's say that she put more emphasis in her platform on that issue. Well, there are many, many things in the, that she believed that I could not in good conscience support because I don't believe they're biblically true. I don't believe that that is what God wants. But I am very interested in changing the poverty system, the systemic issues in our country. Had I thought that she had a program that would work and that would allow Christians to engage, that would have been a harder choice for me. I happen to, looking at it, my opinion, others may disagree, that the methodology that we're going to go about to do that really excluded people of faith in any meaningful way, and it put everything on the government, and it was going to do it in ways that were unsustainable and not healthy for our government. So that became a practical decision, and I think our practical wisdom needs to come into this. So picking the issue that's most important, and the other thing I'd say is it can't be an issue that's mostly for my comfort, and I know that we it's human in us to fall into. This person will make my life more comfortable. This person will do things for me. My criteria is, as best I can judge, which issue will most allow us to be about God's business in this world, even if it's inconvenient to Terry. So we're continuing a a little segment here talking about heroes of the faith. Last week we covered John Wesley, and I wanted to give one of my heroes of the faith today, and that is Charles Spurgeon. And we're we're hitting some Good choice. some giants here, Good some choice. Mount Rushmore Christians. But there's so many things I love about Spurgeon. Um, the thing that maybe is most surprising to people who just know a little bit about Spurgeon is how young he was when he came to faith and began preaching. He's yes. 16. When he comes to faith and immediately starts preaching, he's pastoring a church and, and, and preaching every week within a year. And 
you know, one of the things I've always loved is there's this letter that he writes to his mom when he's 17. And at this point, he's working at a little parish church. And the person there is just basically assigning him little tasks to do. And so one of his jobs was to oversee, you know, 30 some odd families and go to their house every week and bring tracts to talk about their faith. And so he's, as a 17 year old, he writes this letter to his mom and he says, you know, my greatest desire is that I would be able to do something for God. He's like, right now, I don't know what it is. And I know that he has something for me out there, but I just wish I could do something for God. And I always just think it's amazing when you know who he became after that yes. and what we know about Spurgeon now. Uh-huh. Thinking about him as a 17-year-old on the front of all the ministry that awaited him, he just had that desire to say, I just wish I could do something for God. Yeah. And a few years later, he ends up at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, easily the biggest preacher of his day, uh, preached all over the place. They said that he could preach in open air. They obviously didn't have microphones then. Right. To 20,000 people. And he did at a couple different times. And um, if you if you know anything about Spurgeon, you know that he's a great preacher. He's called the Prince of Preachers. preachers. Uh-huh. But, but one of the things that you may not know is just how involved he was in the life of his congregation. It's easy to look at his you know, 20 volumes of sermons and say, man, did this guy do anything but preach? And when you get to know about his life a little bit, uh-huh. it's amazing that he was able to do that much preaching right. because of all the other things that he did. Right. Out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he founded and ran himself over 60 organizations, orphanages, wow. uh, uh, pastor's college, mm-hmm. um, services for the poor, welfare, all of that kind of stuff, care for elderly people, all out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He trained over 800 pastors and preachers that he would lecture to. His book, Lectures to My Students, is, uh-huh. is an amazing that is a very look good book. at what he would do on Fridays with, with the men who were in his college. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about Spurgeon is you look at him and he is such a tremendous success in the eyes of history. I mean, one of the most famous Christians, one of the most well-respected Christians, you don't have to be Reformed or Baptist to respect Spurgeon. He's a great writer, over a hundred books. Some of them are still in print. People still read his sermons. But when you dive into his life a little bit, you realize for most of his life, he was theologically embattled and he was on the losing side. Now he's right. in he's on some sides that have ended up triumphing in the scope of history. But if you think early in his ministry, he was embattled with the hyper-Calvinists in London. And for the short term, came right. out on the wrong side of that. Right. There's a great book by Ian Murray, um, Spurgeon versus the anti or the the hyper Calvinists, and you know he he was basically arguing we need to do evangelism. Yeah, we have to preach the gospel. It doesn't matter if people are elect. It doesn't matter if God's in charge of salvation. The means that He's appointed mm-hmm. is the preaching of His word. Right, and that's one of the things that Spurgeon believed through his whole life. And that's one of the things that led to probably the greatest controversy in his life, which is known today as the downgrade controversy. And this is one that's pretty heartbreaking when you read about it. So he believed that uh, you know only Christians should be considered Christians, only people that have put their trust in Christ, only people that believe the gospel, only people that are members of church should be treated like Christians. And in that day, you see already in the church in England sliding towards a little bit more liberal understanding of what it means to be a believer. And Spurgeon just wouldn't budge. 
He wouldn't budge on scripture. He wouldn't budge on the gospel. He wouldn't budge on redemption. And he actually got voted out of his organization and censured by them afterwards. And one of the things about him is he died an early death. And his wife said after he died that the downgrade controversy, being rejected, his his own brother voted to censure him within the denomination, that that was what broke his heart. He never recovered from that. Mm -hmm. He never recovered from seeing the church drift towards liberalism, even doing everything he could to stand in the way. Right. But probably my favorite thing about Spurgeon is that he was always committed to the preaching of the word and to evangelism. So if you just read a sermon from Spurgeon, you're going to notice two things. Number one, how seriously he takes the scriptures. Right. He is what we would consider a little bit of a topical preacher. He takes about a half of a verse usually and preaches on it. But what he does in those sermons is weave together in, a, in the Bible in such a right. way that you know that he has spent so much time being immersed in scripture. The other thing is you're going to know that at the end of every single sermon or somewhere in the middle, he's going to call for people to give their lives to Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes from the fact that Spurgeon's own story uh, begins when he walks into a church that nobody to this day knows who was preaching at that church. It was a guest preacher, probably Uh the youth pastor at one of these little (laughs) British churches. And he goes in during a storm and the preacher looks down at him from the pulpit and he says, you need to turn and look on Christ to be saved. And it was that sermon on Isaiah 45, 22 that uh-huh. says, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth that changed Spurgeon's life in 1850. And that was the clarion call for his ministry throughout his entire career. He believed that everybody should hear the gospel. Everybody should be given the opportunity to be saved. Right. And he wouldn't mince words about it in his sermons. He would call on people to repent that very day in his sermons. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think of that as revivalism today. Right. Or in, in the tradition of, you know, the Crusades or something like that. But for Spurgeon, that was what he did every Sunday, multiple times every Sunday. Right. Was preach the gospel, preach about everything in the Bible, the full counsel of God, but always bring it back to the fact that people need to turn to Christ and be saved. You know, uh, last week I talked about John Wesley, again, not for theological reasons, but I felt he lived out his faith. But he was obviously a great preacher in the 1700s and did the same thing. You know, and sometimes today we just draw our lines so sharply. Well, you're a Calvinist or you're a Wesleyan. If you look at Charles Spurgeon, you look at John Wesley, you read their sermons, they're doing the exact same thing. They're calling people to repent and turn to Christ and become holy and blameless before him. I just think that's interesting that they would have had fewer problems with each other than than we do today about them. Certainly. Can I ask you uh, to talk about two interesting episodes in Spurgeon's life. One is the uh, interaction, the correspondence he had with P.T. Barnum. So this is a fascinating story, especially given the movie uh, The the Greatest Showman. So P.T. Barnum uh, wrote to Spurgeon, and he was coming to England with his circus. So he's got these big tents, and he's got this circus, And uh, basically, he says to Spurgeon, hey, I would love for you to come and preach in my tent. And he made him what what at the time was an extremely generous offer. So he says he's going to give him, you know, maybe $1,000 or something per sermon and that uh, 
you would pay him to be there and that he would be really the main attraction to what P.T. Barnum was doing. And so Spurgeon, so, but being Spurgeon. Let me explain this, though. But basically, if I remember this right, correct me if I'm wrong. So what Spurgeon, uh, what Barnum was saying is, look, you want to preach the gospel, which I don't care that much about that, but I want to get a bunch of people in my tent and make money. Right. We could team up here. Yeah. Yeah. He so wanted that was to, his he basic wanted him to premise. team up. And so Spurgeon writes this letter back to him and he says, Dear Mr. Barnum, you can find my reply in Acts 13.10. Thank you very much, Charles Spurgeon. And if you look up, Acts, Acts 13.10 says this, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? <laughs> so Spurgeon was not a guy that minced words. He was not a guy that took lightly any kind of compromise with the world or in the case of P.T. Barnum, any any kind of selling out the gospel for another ulterior motive. motive. One of my other favorite stories, uh, and I don't know why this is, but obviously there were no microphones. And when he would go speak earlier, if you were going to speak that evening, he'd go in during the day and he would get in there and he would, he obviously had an unbelievably commanding voice to be mm-hmm. able to reach it. And he would test out the facility. Yeah. What we'd call a mic check. Right. He would go in and kind of see how he would reach that. And one day something interesting happened. Yeah, this is just an amazing story. I mean, it, it, it really, it reminds you of the power of the Word of God, exactly. not the preacher. That's why so I love he's, it. He goes into the agricultural hall and he's testing out the acoustics of the room. And so he gets up on the stage and he clears his throat and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he didn't think that there was anybody in there. But it turns out there was a custodian in the back, up in the balcony, cleaning the pews, getting ready for the night. And after he says that, it catches the guy's attention. He comes down and he asks him, what do I have to do to be saved? And that kind of stuff happened to Spurgeon all the time. Yeah. There's a story of a lady who was converted because they used to they used to publish his sermons in the newspaper. And so he'd have this column every week that was in the newspaper. And, and with old newspapers back then, what they would do is they'd cut them up and use them to package meat and groceries and that kind of thing. And so she has a portion of his sermon wrapped around a stick of butter. And as she's cutting up the butter and getting ready to cook with it, she starts reading the sermon. And she gets convicted. <laughs> and she writes to the tabernacle and says that she wants to know how to be saved, saved. because she read part of his sermon on the on, on the scrap paper that was used to wrap up the butter. And wow. That stuff just it just reminds you that Spurgeon was faithful to the Word of God, uh, but he never got confused about where the power comes from Amen. in preaching, and that's from the Word. So Amen. I'd suggest if anybody wants to read more about Spurgeon or get to know his life a little bit better, there's a great biography. It's by a guy named Dallimore, so it's D-A-L-L-I-M-O-R-E, just, just called Charles Spurgeon. Um, another great biography we mentioned this last week is Spurgeon on the Christian Life. Great series so in general. That one's by Michael Reeves. And that one is one of the best books I've read on Spurgeon. It's it's an awesome book. Uh, two of Spurgeon's own works that I think are really good is there's a little volume from the Banner of Truth called The Letters of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Hmm. And if you really want to see what kind of man he was, what kind of pastor he was, this little collection of letters from him to his parents, to his congregation, to his brother, you know, to everybody. Some of them are theological and some of them are just letters that he would write in the, in the course of life. Really give you a glimpse of who he was as a man. The last thing I would say, and probably my favorite thing on Spurgeon, is a little book called 
the pastor in prayer. Hmm. And I've seen this put out by several different people. Banner of Truth has a little one that's that's good. And uh, there are a couple other publishers that, that have one. But uh, the pastor in prayer, the prayers of Charles Haddon Spurgeon are just amazing. What he would do at the beginning of his sermons, he would pray. And oftentimes he would pray for 10 minutes out hmm. loud. I mean, these, these prayers are like 20 pages long each. And in the intro of the Banner of Truth version, uh, they include a little excerpt from D.L. Moody, who went over to England. And he said that the thing that struck him the most about Spurgeon wasn't the tabernacle, wasn't his preaching, wasn't his famous voice. It was his praying, his praying wow. before his sermons. And so uh, the pastor in prayer is probably my favorite thing by Spurgeon. You just read his prayers and see the way that he talked to God. And you'll understand pretty much everything you need to know about Spurgeon. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.